This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I never really wanted to be a writer. And I was very much set on a a career in military medicine. It was only when I responded to an ad in the British Medical Journal, a TV show in development was looking for medical advisors, that I kind of got switched on to the idea of, uh, of making some kind of contribution. Welcome to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. And that voice heard at the top of the episode belongs to Jed Mercurio. June, you spoke to Jed Mercurio. Who is he and why did you seek him out for the show? So Jed Mercurio, which is such a great name. I'm glad we get to say it a whole bunch of times. Jed Mercurio. Jed Mercurio. He is a British TV writer. Um, He made Bodyguard, which was well received on Netflix a couple of years ago. But I especially love his show, Line of Duty, which by my lights is one of the best cop shows of the last decade or a little bit more. Um, There are now six seasons, though only five have aired in the US at this point, which is causing some challenges for those of us who have text chains with British people because all they want to talk about is Line of Duty and I have to la 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 la. But anyway, I wanted to talk to him because he recently executive produced a show for the first time. That show was Bloodlands, which aired on the BBC in the UK and is now available on Acorn TV here in the States. And executive producer is one of those jobs that I'm always really curious about. So I wanted to learn more about what exactly he did on that project. So for people like me, ignoramuses who have seen neither Bloodlands or Line of Duty, what should we know about them? Well, the first thing to know is that they're police procedurals, which is a genre that I am very fond of. Um, Bloodlands is set in Northern Ireland, and the case that the first season follows is one that digs into the way that the Troubles, uh, the sectarian conflict between Catholics and Protestants, which was officially settled at the end of the 1990s, keeps resurfacing. And, you know, there are riots happening in Belfast right now. So obviously that is a real issue in the real world. Um, Line of Duty, which I really, really recommend to anyone who hasn't seen, who has even the vaguest interest in cop shows. um, It's set in a police anti-corruption unit, what a US cop show would call internal affairs. Mm -hmm. And I will just note two of the basic ingredients that make it great. It is very twisty with huge but totally believable surprises being sprung on a regular basis. And a lot of the action takes place in very realistic seeming police interviews. Now, that sounds like and it could be very dull, but Mercurio is absolutely fantastic at building tension into those conversations. And he's clearly interested in what the Brits call bank coppers. So there's very little of the valorization of cops that we often see in U.S. police procedurals. Great. And after your discussion with Jed, we've got a voicemail from friend of the program, Roxanne Gay, with a bit of creative advice for our listeners. And also, I do believe if you're a Slate Plus Kateer, you get a little (laughs) something extra with your episode this week, right? You sure do. Yes. 
members will hear Jed Mercurio's thoughts about why, although lots of top British actors work in the US, very few TV writers, including the big stars, cross the Atlantic to work on US TV shows. Ah, well, I mean, if you can resist the appeal of that, I suppose you can resist the appeal of anything like ice cream sundaes or the delightful music of the Bee Gees or joining Slate Plus. But if your soul is not dead and if you like nice things, why not subscribe to Slate Plus? You'll get exclusive members-only content, zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, that's enough pitching out of me. Let's listen to June's conversation with Jed Mercurio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Jed Mercurio and I'm a television writer. So I would say that you are mostly known, especially over here, for two shows that you created and wrote, uh, Line of Duty and Bodyguard. But we're going to begin today by talking about a show that you executive produced, Bloodlands. Um, Could you describe that show for anyone who hasn't seen it yet? Yeah, Bloodlands is the uh, first production uh, that I've exec produced through my production company, HTM Television. It's a show created by Chris Brandon, and it's set in Northern Ireland in the present day, and it follows a cold case investigation, which is triggered by a, a crime in the present. And as a lot of people know, the particular kind of cultural and political legacy in Northern Ireland is informed by the Troubles, uh, mm. which was a, a kind of sectarian conflict that took place in the recent past. And uh, peace was restored at the end of the 90s. And it's now a very prosperous area. But one of the things that makes it a great setting for Bloodlands is the fact that there, there are still enormous difficulties that arise from, from that past conflict. I do want to ask you about your, the way that you love to kind of resurface the past in, in your work. Um, but I'm curious about the role of executive producer. It's one of those titles or roles that can mean different things in different shows. And people hear that role, they don't always have a clear vision of what it means. Could you say what kind of work your being executive producer on Bloodlands involved? Initially, I worked with the writer, Chris. Mm. I read his script, which um, was being sent out to various production companies, and I I really liked what he'd done. I thought it was um, a great way into an area of drama that isn't examined that much, mm-hmm. which is the, the, the legacy of recent social conflict. Yeah. Uh, great characters, 
really great hooks in the work. And so it was really about finding a way to bring that to the screen. So I worked mm. pretty closely with Chris and, and then with, with another executive producer, Mark Redhead. And we got the script into really good shape. And then we were able to attach uh, James Nesbitt mm. to play mm. the lead. And then we had the package that we were able to take to the broadcaster, the BBC. Mm. So as an executive producer, I, I was just doing my best to facilitate Chris's vision for the show that, that he wanted to write. I know it's not a role that exactly exists in Britain, but you weren't the showrunner of the show. It was a facilitation mostly. There wasn't really a showrunner on Bloodlands because Chris is a brand new writer. There was a director who directed all the episodes, uh, a producer and executive producers who were all involved in the series. So I served as an executive producer throughout the, the production period and post-production. So I, I was part of the editorial team. So during the shoot, it's looking at, at assemblies and cuts and, and deciding mm. whether we've got the right material or enough of the right material. Then when we're into the post-production period, just being very involved in the editorial process of deciding the final cut. You know, the process with TV is that the post-production period isn't very long. We have we have to get all the episodes into shape and, and approved by the network. So it's a team process. I know that for Line of Duty, which is set in on the mainland in, in England, Northern Ireland is somehow like sponsoring or something. Is that Was it the same with, with Bloodlands? And can you kind of sort me out of, of what the relationship is exactly? Yeah, so... Bloodlands was shot in Northern Ireland and is set there. Mm -hmm. Line of Duty from season two onwards has been shot in Northern Ireland, oh. uh, in Belfast. Oh. Uh, but it is set in an anonymous <laughs> English city. I see. So we have to disguise that it's Belfast, whereas in, in Bloodlands, because it's very much part mm. of the the atmosphere and the, the location of the piece, we were kind of showcasing the the Northern Irish location. Yeah. So we had some set in in Belfast, which is the largest city, but the majority was set in and around uh, Strangford Lock, which is a an, an inland lake that mm. is quite eerie, yeah. quite rugged, yeah. and that was a, a big part of creating the atmosphere of the series. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful setting, but also very eerie. That that um ferry ride over uh you know you you do have that feeling of like we're, we're moving from the normal world maybe into the past um it's it, it is a very it's nice that you're able to to kind of make that journey and have it be a very kind of part of the the way that the show looks as well yeah in fact i said that i described strangford lock as being an inland lake and i, I misspoke mm. it's actually it looks like it's an inland lake but it, it's actually um, continuous with the sea. Ah. It's kind of, uh, it, it's almost completely bounded by land, but there's an inlet to the sea, ah. which um, contributes to the currents and the, um, the, the overall ruggedness uh, of the location. When you talked about what attracted you to the project, you talked about Northern Ireland and the Troubles and the history and that feeling of the past resurfacing. Let's listen to a clip from Bloodlands where those elements are on display. In the clip, 
two police officers are talking about an unsolved case from the past. In the early part of 1998, in the months leading up to the peace agreement, a handful of us were made aware of a possible assassin who, it seemed, had access to police intelligence. He was never identified, but the suspicion was that it could only have been an inside man. That concept of the past resurfacing seems like a common theme in your work. So, for example, in Line of Duty, it's often the case that characters from previous episodes or even previous seasons come back. Old storylines are revived. Is that just a recurring interest of yours as a writer? Well, I think they're they're distinct mm. in these two examples. Mm. In Bloodlands, it's very much part of the DNA of the, the pitch that... It's set in Northern Ireland. It's set around the story of a protagonist who's a, a police officer who is a serving detective in the present day, mm-hmm. but whose career stretches back into the past when the role of policing was, was somewhat different because of the, the social conflict that was going on um, within the communities. In Line of Duty, we've kind of told the story in the present. It's just that with each season we inherit the legacy of what's gone before. So we very rarely in Line of Duty delve into a past that predates season one. But it still feels like it's unusual and wonderful to have past seasons returning because like, that's what happens in life. Um, People from your past resurface. And it very rarely happens in television. I think for logistical reasons, um, people don't want to, presume that they can get actors back. When you're doing something like that, which comes first, the storyline or, or the availability of the actor? It's something that we have to explore with, with each season. Mm. So we, we don't plan ahead to the extent that we can book an actor to be in the following season or the season after. So it's only when we're in the process of constructing the, the season that we're working on that we might then start that conversation so we would explore whether a particular actor is available uh, uh, to serve a certain storyline and if we're lucky enough that they are then we can go ahead and include that storyline if it turns out that they're not then we have to explore alternatives as i mentioned earlier uh, when we're recording this line of duty the current season is airing in the uk um it's not quite here yet although i'm sure it will be soon um it's the water cooler show right now. You know, it's it's the show that's getting the episodic recaps in the newspapers, post-air podcasts. Actually, before I go on, I'm curious what you think about all those recaps and post-air podcasts. Like, how do you feel about that obsessive attention to your work? Has it changed the way you write at all? No, it hasn't made any difference at all. I mean, I, I don't follow those things uh. i mean i'm i'm thrilled that they're there yeah um and uh, i know people do take part in them and, <laughs> and and listen to them and i think that it really adds to the enjoyment of the dedicated fans yeah and you know o- over the years of my career i've I- i've always wanted to write dramas that people would have to pay real attention to and that that by remembering events from previous episodes or 
um, spotting connections uh-huh. early and and so on, it, it enhanced the viewer experience. Uh, what's happened is that the the technology has changed. So now with the advent of streaming platforms mm-hmm. and catch up technology, mm-hmm. people can go back and rewatch mm-hmm. and and they can. Um, catch up on an episode they may have missed so they don't miss out on the connections within the story these are all things that that have only been around for a a decade or so Um, if you go back into the more distant past in television then shows really struggled to um, convince networks that having very complex connected storylines where the the viewers had to watch every single minute of every single episode would succeed. Of course, some of them did, um, but that didn't mean that networks were averse to the risk of that kind of storytelling. One of the things that really, you know, you've talked about the, the twists, the spotting, the connections. You do twisty really well. I mean, there are definitely twists and surprises in Bloodland. You know, Line of Duty constantly has them. So I'm curious how you kind of manage that, because the shows that you've made are also often really about bureaucracy and process. Um, Line of Duty is about investigations in a very detailed way, as was uh, Bloodlands. Um, Are twistiness and accurate representation of bureaucracy things that you're thinking about when you sit down to either create a new show or to write a new season of one of your existing shows? Well, I think any writer, when they're creating the world of the show, has to look at whether they're attempting to draw on the real world or they're deciding on a more escapist route. Yeah. You know, generally, I've looked at real-world correlates of the kinds of stories and settings and characters that that I've employed and that's helped me make decisions about how a story might be told and and how much um, investment an audience is going to have in believing the outcomes believing that the events they're watching could happen in in some kind of plausible version of our recognized reality Mm. that doesn't mean that shows that are entirely escapist which reject all of that don't don't work of course they do i mean the the classic example of of it in the genre that line of duty and bloodlands is set is the the idea of the amateur sleuth Uh, amateur sleuths don't exist in the real world (laughs) uh you wouldn't know it from watching tv (laughs) and it doesn't seem to matter on tv that, that anybody seems to be able to to investigate a crime um if they're minded to whereas you know those of us who are familiar with the real world know that that is a rare and and at times unlikely event we'll be back with more of june's conversation with jed mercurio after this Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, listeners, a couple things real quick. First, if you're enjoying this podcast, great. Please take a moment to subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a second of working. And if you happen to be listening on Overcast, please recommend the episode by hitting the star icon. Also, while I've got your attention, if you have any questions about the creative process, big or small, whether it's how to figure out a big pivot at work or tackle an ambitious writing project or just find more time in your day to be creative, we would love to help. You can drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us an old fashioned phone call at 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-9675. We really, really like phone calls. Okay, let's rejoin June's conversation with Jeb Mercurio. Your police procedurals are very heavy on procedure. Um, There's a lot about the requirements for police interviews, you know, how many levels above in rank the person who's questioning needs to be, uh, you know, the specifics of the way the things, the... the, um, the exhibits are presented. Let's actually listen to a clip of Line of Duty so listeners can hear what I'm talking about. Here's a police interview from this show. Questions will be put to you by Superintendent Hastings. Is it your right to be questioned by an officer at least one rank senior? I will furnish factual information only, starting with image 47. From a CCTV I think camera, of Captain those restrictions as being like creative restrictions, which can be quite helpful uh, when it comes to writing. You know, it's not quite a blank page it's you know like restricted by what real life cops have to do is that how you think of of those real life restrictions that you present in your shows i think that the way they work is that they give the show a distinctive identity so if you're going to go down that road of trying to be as true to life as possible then I think you can't do it with half measures because I think most shows do it with half measures. They they do enough that it feels like it's set in a, in a, a realistic depiction of law enforcement, but they're prepared for whatever reasons, and, and I think the reasons are usually justified, to apply artistic license, to cut corners, to um, to platform stories in in ways that maybe wouldn't happen in the real world. And obviously we do that to an extent in in Line of Duty Mm -hmm. and and in Bloodlands. But I think our aim is to do it as little as possible. I mean, again, I've I've never seen an actual police interview. So I I, maybe I'm falling for your for your fiction, you know, that ah, that's how exactly how they do it. Um, Is it actually accurate? And if it is, you know, how do you how do you find out how cops actually do their interviews well, it's accurate up to a point, um, and, and I think that applies to to drama in general. That drama isn't reality, and we view the two things differently, and they're certainly constructed very differently. So, with with Line of Duty, we've not sought to emulate what a real police interview is that we've watched. We've sought to apply the procedures that we know real police officers have to to follow. And from those first principles, we've created 
a way that we approach police interviews. Um, so it's just really things like the, the way in which evidence is itemized, the, the way in which if a question is being put to a suspect, then the basis of that question has to, has to stand up legally. And so by doing that and doing it as, as rigorously as possible within what is an internally consistent approach, then we create the very similitude of, it, of the interview. Yeah. And the way that we do it is, is distinctive and contributes to the identity of the show. I think if you were to put one of our interviews against a real police interview, you would see significant differences. Mm. But then I think if you put an interview from a regular cop show against a police interview, you'd probably see even greater differences. I know that you're a fully qualified doctor, uh, or so I believe. Was it a tough decision to switch from practicing medicine to becoming a screenwriter? Well, I was very fortunate that I, I never really had to make the decision. Oh. Um, I was working as a as a resident in internal medicine when um, my first show was on the air and then it, it got ordered for a second season. So I ended up taking a sabbatical to work on the second season and then I just kept extending that sabbatical. <laughs> and um, so I never really felt that I was turning my back on medicine. Oh. I always thought that there was an opportunity to go back if TV didn't work out. Uh-huh. And it's just as the years went by and I got more involved in TV and farther away from medicine that it became clear that I was on a different career path. Not to be too crest, but physicians make much less in the UK. Um, it's hard for me to imagine many American doctors making that move, although I know there are some like Neil Baer who... Um, is is also a physician. But are there things from your medical training that you use in your writing practice? Well, a number of the shows that I've worked on have been set in the medical world. Mm -hmm. So that was a big part of certainly my early career. Um, the, the, The first show I did was... It was a little like Scrubs mm-hmm. is probably the, the, the best example. <laughs> um, it was a kind of comedy drama um, built around the experiences of kind of interns and residents. And then I did another show a, a few years later that was um, a, a much darker and more complex piece. It was an out-and-out drama set in um, obstetrics and gynecology in a, in a, a department that had multiple dysfunctions and it was kind of a you know an examination of how things can go wrong in the medical world uh-huh. but i guess the the, the 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 universal factor is that i've got primary experience of seeing sort of very stressful life or death situations mm. and have seen lots of people in those situations, coping with them and responding to them in different ways. So that sort of gives me a template to write about that kind of scenario. I'm curious about when the desire to kind of break into writing came, when you go through the onerous uh, training and the, it's difficult to get into medical school, you go through all that. I think you also served in, in the Air Force. During all those um, years, were you thinking, this is great and all, but I just really want to be a writer? When did that seed get planted? I never really wanted to be a writer uh, until I got the opportunity. Huh. I uh, I was a fan of TV and film, and, and uh, I, I certainly 
would have jumped at the opportunity. But I went to a very ordinary high school. Um, there was no real opportunity to do creative things. There was a lot of pressure to, to do well in, in high school and, and give yourself the opportunity to get into a, a secure profession. And that was the path I took. I, um, I, I was a very sciencey kid and I ended up going to medical school. And while I was at medical school, I, I joined the Air Force. And I was very much set on a, a career in military medicine. And it was, it was only when I, I responded to an, an ad in the British Medical Journal or a, a TV show in development was looking for medical advisors that I kind of got switched on to the idea of uh, of making some kind of contribution. And, and I n honestly never expected it to, to lead anywhere. So I was incredibly fortunate that it did. So w when you did get that break, as it were, were there things that you did to kind of figure out how to be a good writer? Like were there th books that you read? Were there... I don't imagine there were online courses that you took, but like, how did you figure out how to be a good writer? Well, initially, I was very fortunate to serve what you might describe as an apprenticeship with the producers on the show who, who were very experienced. And so they mentored me through a process of, of the absolute basics from how you lay out a script to some fundamental guidance on, on how you structure your story. And then... Once I was delivering drafts, they were giving me great notes, which I was learning from. And it was only when the the first season aired and was a hit and there were more seasons to be written that I thought, well, I, I need to take this a little more seriously now. And, and that's the point where I kind of did the, the screenwriting workshops, you know, the weekend courses and, and read, you know, books on, on, on story structure and, and story construction and so on mm. what was that show that that first show that you worked on it was called cardiac arrest oh. uh, and it aired in the uk uh from 1994 so it, it came out a few months before er uh -huh. and like i said it probably the the thing that it was closest to was scrubs yeah. but i think scrubs aired later as well so when you did make that move from uh medicine to writing did, what, did you feel like you were using different parts of your brain? Did it feel like you were stretching different muscles? What did it feel like to make that switch? Oh, definitely it felt like I was getting into a, a new area. And I'd always done very technical things. So to do something that was quite creative was a real challenge, but also something that I really enjoyed. And as the process went on and, and as I learned more about it, it was something that I became more confident with. But initially, I, you know, I, I have to be honest, I was very naive about writing, very naive about how TV worked. So it was something that I was kind of doing as a hobby or as a sideline and with no real expectation that it, it would, would change my career path. Jed Mercurio, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments. Not minutes, like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. (sighs) Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. June, what a (laughs) delightful down-to-earth conversation the two of you had. This is the second time you've talked with the writer for UK television, and I am struck anew by how different they (laughs) do it over there. Like, I did a double take when he said that Bloodlands doesn't have a showrunner. Yeah. I mean, Bloodlands has one writer for all the episodes, Chris Brandon, and also the same director directed all four episodes. And Jed Mercurio has written every episode of the six seasons of Line of Duty. You know, it's a different way of making TV. It's still very collaborative. It's not like they are one man bands, but Line of Duty is most definitely Jed Mercurio's show in the way that It's a Sin was Russell T. Davis's or Gentleman Jack is a Sally Wainwright show. Like, All that is possible without their having a direct analog of the U.S. showrunner role. Right, totally. Because uh, I guess if you don't have a writer's room, what are you Mm. running if 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 it's just you? You know, June, I loved that you asked Jed about recap and post-air podcasts because you hosted a wonderful one about the Americans and you and I co-hosted, if I do say so myself, pretty delightful one about (laughs) Game of Thrones and its final seasons. And, you know, he seemed like he's done the really healthy thing as a creator and now totally avoids them. But I do feel like more and more people People who work on long-running shows are taking the audience's reaction into account in a really overt way. Do you see that in your TV viewing? Are, are fans becoming a more important or perhaps even too important part of the television creative process? Yeah, they are. And I'm really conflicted about this. I think it's awesome that there are these fandoms that can unite and kick up a fuss when a show does something deeply uncool. Like I'm thinking of the way that Fans of a CW drama called The 100 rose up when that show built up this really strong relationship between two of the female leads and then very suddenly killed one of them in a way that followed the script of the classic lesbian baiting bury your gaze trope. And so that response and that protest really warmed my heart and I thought it was totally justified. At the same time, I also want creators to be in charge of their creations, like to be responsible for the successes and the delights, but also to have the freedom to fail to please. Like there's an amazing episode of Slate's Decodering podcast called The John Locke Conspiracy about how the Sherlock fandom got totally out of hand and effectively killed the show. I mean, that is fandom at its worst. I'd say that 
even though I have some sympathy for what those fans wanted, like it can get out of hand so easily. Right. Uh, I was also fascinated to learn that he did not train as a TV writer. He trained as a doctor. Now, maybe this is because writing is my second career, too. But it's worth saying that in any creative industry, no two people's paths are really the same and that there is nothing wrong. I want to underline this. (laughs) There is nothing wrong with having a second career. God, absolutely not. I've done now a couple of projects around second acts, which, you know, is when a person moves from one career to another. And it's often the case that the shift is driven by passion. Like I remember speaking with Nicole Auerbach, an attorney who became a rabbi, and Jerry Allen, a guy who started from the bottom, the very bottom of the national park system and eventually did become a park ranger uh, in his 60s, I think, after a multi-decade career at Delta Airlines. Like, they were just both so driven to to kind of start over. And with Jed Mercurio, I got the impression that he would have been happy if he'd stayed in medicine. Like, it wasn't, I just must become a writer. But, you know, I was a fan of his TV show, so I'm glad he did. Isaac, would you describe your career shift as being about getting a chance to live out a dream? I mean, it's worked out that way, but no, not really. I mean, if I'm going to be completely honest, it was because I... So I was working as a director as kind of my primary occupation, and writer was a kind of secondary thing. And Mm -hmm. um, what really happened was my now wife and I wanted to get married and have a kid. And I realized that the career I was chasing as a director, like if I actually got the success I wanted, I'd be on the road like six months out of the year. And I just didn't want to, um, that's not how I wanted to raise a family. I just didn't want to do that. Um, yeah. and at the same time, my wife wanted to quit theater and get her MBA. And so, uh, I started to explore what some alternatives would be that would be a more manageable, sustainable, a life for us. And yeah. I started exploring the kind of thing that had been on the back burner, the writing thing. And I sort of switched which burners they were on. Right. And so writing became primary and directing became secondary. But, um, one of the things that, that happened as a result of that weirdly was I got the biggest gigs I'd ever had as a director, <laughs> right. When I made that decision, right. When I was like, I'm quitting and I'm going to graduate school. Um, uh, and also I discovered like a real, a, a, a true love, love of writing. And, and, you know, I'm, huh. I'm glad it's what I do every day to be completely wow, honest. Interesting. Uh, You've, of course, you know, have many different roles within within Slate and, and currently, you know, it's not all one job that mm. you've had this whole time. And, and currently your focus is much more on podcasts than it was, you know, five, 10 years ago. Yeah. You know, w- what was that transition like for you? What was that second act like? Well, you know, I think it's more that that is kind of a, a career path, you know, in journalism, like in, in most, um, I don't know, in some fields the sort of more senior you get, the less you do the thing that got you into that profession. I mean, it happens in teaching uh, where you become an administrator. It happens in um, in journalism, which you probably start, you know, pretty much everybody starts as a writer, then you become an editor. And if you become more senior as an editor, you don't really do any editing. Um, <laughs> it, so it is that odd progression of doing something in a way that kind of stops you doing the thing that you love. But, you know, I'm at Slate, we get to, um, you know, it's it's not a very territorial place. So, you know, occasionally I'll write a TV review or something. You can kind of keep your hand in if there's something that you really want to write. Um, so it just feels like it's, it's part of the seasons of a career. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems more of a natural progression kind of thing. 
Interesting. You know, I have a friend who has this theory that that creative types fall into two categories, which are eels and squids, <laughs> um, because eels at every stage of their maturity, they are radically different organisms. And like a baby eel and an adult eel are nothing alike. Basically, they're like very, very different creatures, whereas squids just start as small squids and become ever larger and larger squids, right? So you sort of lead a bunch of different lives and you do a whole variety of things. Or, you know, from the age of 10, you know that you're going to be, let's say, a writer and then you just become more and more yourself, a larger and larger squid as you go along. And and I like that both of those are valid ways of, you know, pursuing a creative life. Interesting. I am also excited because Mm -hmm. friend of the program, Roxanne Gay, left us a voicemail with some writing advice, and I want to get your opinion on it. Let's take a listen. Hello, my name is Roxanne Gay, and I am a writer. I've written books like Bad Feminist and Hunger. In terms of a piece of general creative advice, you know, these days I'm really fond of talking about how first drafts aren't necessarily terrible. People love to talk about how terrible first drafts are, and sometimes they are, but sometimes there's some really interesting stuff happening there, and I wish more writers would trust their initial instincts. So first drafts aren't necessarily terrible. June, what do you make of Roxanne's advice? Oh, I loved it. I found it bracing and, you know, a useful corrective to this popular narrative that first drafts are universally awful. I mean, I get why... That is such a popular refrain. A lot of people, me included, you know, you need to hear it because first versions can be crap and you really shouldn't give up if you're hating what you're typing. But the first version of an idea can also be the best one. It's definitely possible to work a thing to death and drain the life all the way out of it. Um, What did you think? Yeah, you know, there's that wonderful essay by Anne Lamott called Shitty First Drafts. And I think amongst writing teachers, that's where a lot of this idea comes from. But the whole point of that essay is generosity, right? It's like, don't torture yourself before you start writing the thing. Just write the thing and then you can make it better. Don't be anxious about it. Just do it. It's okay. You can always change it later. Like there's a real generosity behind that piece that yeah. I think has turned that, that can curdle and become, uh, well, the, you're, the first draft is just a garbage dump. And then all you're going to do is you're going to go through that garbage dump and you're going to look for the like one or two little gems there. And, and then you're going to light the rest on fire and you're going to hate yourself. And, you know, so I, I like that Roxanne is questioning that, you know, yeah. Yeah. there are certainly, I mean, there are parts of the book. I'm doing the final passive edits Oof. with my editor on, on the method right now. And there are sentences in that book that come from the first draft, you know, yeah. because I got it right that yeah. time. And when you, and yeah. sometimes meddling for the sake of meddling is not helpful. Yeah. I think that if you can just find ways to be as generous and kind to yourself throughout while still being rigorous, you know, to me, that's the key. And sometimes that means recognizing when you're like, hey, good job, past version of me. Um, You know, there, there are those ideas there. And I absolutely agree with you that you can revise something to such a point that you've drained all the blood out of it. And that whatever initial spark, initial impulse, initial problem or conflict, question motivated you and made that piece of writing worth doing is gone. And finding that balance between revising and strangling you know, your own work is one of the main learning experiences as you become a more mature artist, I think. Yeah, I think having trust in your abilities um be generous but also have confidence everything that you produce the first 
time that you sit down and start typing is not junk and you should trust that. Yeah. You know, I also think there's a thing that we do. I don't know if you do this, June. I, I do this. So I'm just going to say me, not we. There's <laughs> a thing that I do where it's like in my own head to like protect myself from heartbreak. I'm sort of like making fun of my own work. I'm like, well, who wrote this shit? Do you know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah, in my brain. Yeah. And um, it's a good note from Roxanne that like as fun as that can be, sometimes you need to actually turn that off. Uh, like yeah. beating yourself up as a preemptive way of like protecting yourself from other people not liking it or whatever it, it is do actually actually doing no one any favors yeah let's not fetishize self-flagellation we, yes. we do it enough already let's not celebrate it too <laughs> yeah exactly well we hope you've enjoyed the show this week if you have don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts then you'll never miss an episode and yes i am gonna give you the slate plus pitch one last time Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, but more importantly, you will be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Jed Mercurio for being our guest this week. Our amazing producer continues to be the great Cameron Drews, who has to listen to a lot of my takes in the line of duty. We'll be back next week with Roman's conversation with children's book author Stuart Gibbs. Until then, get back to work. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.